Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. Um, my guest this week is Editor-in-Chief of the Post-Millennial, Libby Emmons. You may have read her work in The Federalist, in New York Post, Quillette, or many other places where she publishes on a whole variety of subjects. Um, she was also once a working and successful playwright. That was the first half of her career and her life. And we'll get to that in, in a moment before she decided to turn her writing skills um, towards the political. So welcome Libby to High Noon. It's great to have you. Thanks, Inez. Glad to be here. So I'm sure you're you're getting bored of telling this story at some point, but um, you know, you were a, a rare thing, a working playwright, right? Um, uh, and that was kind of your life. And then uh, you wrote about, uh, you wrote an article in Colette and um, about a, a subject that was interesting to you, but but a subject that your friends had had known that you had sort of um, some heterodox views on, at least for your milieu, and and that was the subject of uh, transgenderism, but in the context of transhumanism. Um, so mm -hmm. you wrote this piece, uh, and you were as, as in in the in the parlance today. You were you were canceled, right? So could you tell us a, a little bit about what you why you wrote that piece, and then how that was received in the theater community that up till then you had spent your entire professional and personal life being a part of? Sure. Yeah, I was a, I was involved in theater. Um, I don't think my mother would say that I was a successful playwright at all. Uh, I produced a lot of my own work, and it was produced in small theater companies, um, both in the U.S. and in the U.K. I think I had a piece up in New Zealand one time, which was really exciting for me. Uh, there was another time, I think there was something translated in Colombia, but you know, some, I was never on Broadway or anything like that, but it was um, my life. My life revolved around making theater, writing plays, um, going to plays, uh, being part of that whole world, primarily in the indie theater scene in downtown New York City, uh, which is what I always wanted to do. That's what I always wanted to do from when I was a kid, essentially, was um, make art. I like to make small batch theater, things like that. So. Yeah, that's what I was doing. Um, I got my graduate degree in playwriting um, and I started to get interested in uh, in transhumanism because I started being interested in transgender ideology, which was emerging in the arts community for sure as uh, the next, like the next uh, cause celeb, right? So there was uh, gay rights, gay marriage, I'm cool with those things personally, and then transgender ideology and transgender um, identifiers were sort of the next big thing that needed to be overcome and included and brought into uh, the arts community, sort of just immediately trans people were considered women as well, trans people who are male who identify as women, which is not really a thing that you can do. I believe. So I started to get frustrated by this, um, by the equation of uh, men in dresses equals female. I thought that's exactly the opposite of what feminism has been teaching us this whole time. And I, I, I was very annoyed by it. So <laughs> I didn't like it at all. Uh, uh, and we were producing, my theater company was producing work by trans identified playwrights because we like to produce good work. And if the work is good, we would produce it. So it had no impact on anything other than I didn't think that men are women. Perfectly happy to, you know, produce your plays if they're good. You know, I didn't care about that. Um, so, yeah, I had started writing a little bit about that in The Federalist. 
about 2015, talking about how trans ideology is actually a reinforcement of gender stereotypes as opposed to breaking them down. And I believe fully that that's true. This wasn't really an issue in my theater work or in my career at all, because no one in indie downtown New York theater reads The Federalist. They just didn't. So it, it was totally irrelevant, right, that, that I was doing this writing. Um, as I started to do a little more research, I started listening to podcasts about transhumanism, which I kind of like stumbled upon um, after listening to an interview with uh, Jordan Peterson on a podcast called Future Thinkers. So from there, I started listening to these other transhumanist podcasts, and I got very intrigued um, by these ideas, and it started to realize, uh, and when I say intrigued, I mean fascinated, right? Like, this is sort of amazing. Uh, I was attracted to the ideas of transhumanism, which is why I found them so compelling, and also I found them troubling. Um, so I started doing a lot of research into transhumanism, and I started to realize uh, that there are elements of transhumanism in Western culture that perhaps we're not even aware of. So I started working on an article about that. Um, the three elements were AI human integration, like Elon Musk's Neuralink concept, uh, body hacking, which is where you can sort of add perhaps an RFID chip to your hand to open your garage door, something like that. Um, or for example, remove your legs and add bouncing legs if you prefer those. These are all sort of elements of body hacking where you integrate technology um, into your otherwise healthy body in order to, um, you know, give it more potentiality or functionality. And also transgender ideology, which, because um, each of these things, what they do is they answer the Cartesian question about the mind-body split and they say, yes, there is a distinct mind-body split. Um, what affects the mind does not affect the body and vice versa, right? So that sort of was a stunning realization to me. I pitched it to Quillette. <clears throat> they were interested. We went through a bunch of drafts to really solidify the idea and make sure that it was clear. Um, and then we published it in June 2018. I reached out to the women that I was working with in my theater project. Um, we were working on, what are we doing? We are doing, well, we were doing avant-garde feminist theater. Like that's what we were making. So I reached out to them. I let them know the piece was going to be published and they were all very supportive. Um, they knew my views. I think pretty much all of the women that I was working with also believed that women and men were, uh, that biological sex is an innate condition and that women and men are not interchangeable simply because they wish it. I'm pretty sure they all think that. Um, because we talked about it and I made jokes about it constantly. <laughs> um, so yeah, so the piece was published. There was a little bit of pushback um, against the piece. It was suggested to me that I should better educate myself, which seemed silly. I, I mean, I went to entirely elitist liberal institutions of learning from 11th grade through graduate school. There's not much more education I could possibly do on these topics. Um, so that was suggested and then it just kind of blew over. It wasn't a big deal, but it came back six months later. Um, I think there were a couple of people who just really didn't want to let it die. And then once it came back, 
it became clear to me that uh, this was going to be an issue. The issue was kind of, you know, I've thought about it over the years. This was 2018. Uh, and I think the issue had, it was sort of interesting because the women I was working with were upset by not necessarily the piece, but the reaction to it. They were, you know, I, I've, I've gone over this through the years and, you know, wanted to be a lot more compassionate to them. Um, I don't think they were upset by the piece. I think they were upset by the reaction. I think they were upset by my uh, unwavering steadfastness in defending the piece and refusing, I refuse to apologize for it. But the biggest issue I believe and what was the end of my arts career was that because I had written this piece and because it was publicly in the community that we were involved in, uh, publicly denounced as you know, all the bad phobic words, you know, we would not have had an audience going forward. And I think that was sort of the issue. No one would have ever come to see the work that we were doing um, because I was associated with it. And I was all of these phobic words, according to non-binary lesbians, essentially in the downtown indie theater community. Um, so yeah, so that's what happened. I, um, I was no longer, I, I no longer had any welcome in that community, uh, either among my friends or my associates or colleagues. And over a period of months after that, I received messages from people who had been slated to produce my work who then um, said that they didn't want to produce it anymore, or people who I'd been, um, you know, potentially going to be working with, you know, we don't need to work with you anymore, and things like that. That's how it went down. I've I've heard you tell this story, um, you know, sort of both personally and publicly over the years. And it's just I just want to say I think it's really impressive that you've you've really have sort of tried to tell it in the most charitable way um to people who I mean, people real who really were not just your colleagues, but were your friends, um, and and turned away from you because you had in an opinion that is actually shared by the vast majority of Americans, but within that milieu um, was considered wholly unacceptable. And, and until that point, you know, um, as you've said many times, you know, that the, the theater was your life and um, not just your professional life, but your personal life. And you sort of went overnight mm -hmm. to, from having all yeah. of these connections and like, this was your life. And then all of a sudden it all disappeared um, over the course of a few months because you stuck to your guns about this, well, let me ask you this. Do you, do you think it would have helped if you had apologized? Do you think that that would have, um, like, somehow you could have continued with that life if you had been willing to recant and apologize? Uh, no, no, I don't think it would have made any difference at all. Um, in, you know, looking back on it, I've often thought, like, should I have apologized? I don't think I should have, because I think an apology would have simply been an admission of guilt. And I think that the result would have been the same. I would have then continued showing up at events. I would not have been asked to do work. Uh, it just would have been an admission of guilt. And then I would have been, um, you know, identified as that person who is all the phobic things and then tried to walk it back, right? That doesn't, that doesn't go well in our society. And it certainly 
really didn't go well in 2018 and 2019. There was absolutely no road to redemption if you had screwed up um, in a in a heretical sense, right? There's more of a road to redemption if you have committed adultery than there is if you have betrayed the leftist ideology uh, that you were supposedly subscribed to. So I don't think that that would have made a difference. I have thought to myself, like, if I knew how things would go down, would I have written the piece? Maybe I would not have published the piece. Is that something perhaps that I would consider, you know, if I was, if it there it was like, you know, June 2018 and I'm pitching the piece to Quillette. I mean, it felt dangerous at the time. I believe I knew what I was getting in for to a certain extent, but I don't think I believed that my theater career would come to an end or that, or that I would end up, you know, completely on the opposite side of things, or that I would lose, uh, you know, so many of, of of the people who I considered my good friends. Um, so that's that's sort of a thing. But no, I don't think apologizing would have made even a scant bit of difference in how things turned out. And there's also the issue of why should you apologize for work that you've done that you believe in. Um, the women I was working with asked me to apologize. They suggested that there might be a road back if I apologized. And I said something like, I think you know me well enough to know that I can't possibly apologize for work that I've done that I that I believe in and stand for. So, yeah. So, I don't think so. Um, you know, I, I, I've been wondering for quite some time. We had Andrew Clavin on the pod, and I asked him about this as well. Um whether art suffers for this, right? For this kind of environment, um, whether it's possible to really create the caliber of art um, that, you know, I guess we should be creating uh, when, when it's impossible. It seems like not, not just that talented people like you are being excised from, from the art world, um, but also then within it, it seems to me that art is exactly one of those places where you really have to have, you really do have to have a lot of room for error, like trial and error. You have to be able to explore sure. ideas, new forms, new ways of presenting things, new, like, um, in, in the, and I'm, I'm not an artist, so, you know, take this all with a grain of salt. But like, it seems to me that this is, this is a, one of those realms that truly deeply requires the ability to, to um, sort of push the boundaries and then, sometimes fail on the, on the other side of that boundary and then retreat and try again in a different way. I mean, that quality seems to be so necessary to the creation of anything new, right? Um, yeah. In the art world. I mean, what, what do you think, how do you think that, for example, the scene that you were part of is affected by not being able to have somebody like you who at that, especially at that time, like your, your views were, you know, solidly, um, non-controversial to a large part of the country in terms of people believing it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, how, how does art survive when it, it is essentially self-selecting down into a more and more niche group of people who perhaps then can't create anything that, it, that appeals outside of that circle. Right. I, I mean, when I think of the greatest works of art, um, there's always something universal about it. There's something mm -hmm. about the human condition, something true, Right. Um, that that people of wildly different backgrounds and wildly different, you know, sort of life experiences can recognize as true as something that that resonates um, 
because we're all human. And right. I wonder if we're losing any of that kind of unconditional or universality in, in art. I do think so. And I think that it has a lot of other causes than just this ideological cancellation issue, which we have seen across artistic disciplines from theater to filmmaking, uh, you know, to literature, um, poetry, you know, all of these areas. I don't know that we've seen it as much in visual art for some reason. I think probably because visual art has such a, uh, visual art is a capitalist commodity at this point. So I think it is treated a little differently when you can make millions and millions of dollars off of a single painting. Um, so that might have something to do with it. But I do think, yeah, that there is an issue in the arts. The ideological cancellation issue leads to a situation where a lot of the art that we see is essentially propagandist. It's almost like advertisements for ideology as opposed to art that is um, based in curiosity and exploration, um, a drive toward making something beautiful. Uh, so yeah, I think that art suffers because of that. And I think that if you look at the art that we see coming out of Hollywood in a lot of cases, you will see uh, exactly what we're talking about, that it is um, a piece of work designed intentionally to uphold a given perspective. There's no question going into it, for example, that uh, a given ideology, a leftist ideology, will be the one that is perpetrated through that work. Um, in theater, in workshops, in writing workshops and other, you know, other areas, there would be a lot of, when I was doing it, there would be a lot of talk about um, making sure that you were representing things in the appropriate way. So if you had, for example, um, a woman who is driven to give up her career because she wants to have children and be married and fall in love, this would be not, this would be considered not appropriately representative of women. This would be considered, um, you know, re 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 sort of regressive, and perhaps that that should not be produced. If you have a man who is, and this actually happened in a workshop, if you have a man who is speaking badly about a woman, uh, criticizing her looks, um, and, you know, whatever else, dumb blonde or whatever, something like that, that would be considered inappropriate, because you are then representing that viewpoint as in some way legitimate, even if let's say the character is a bad guy, right? You're, you're like giving voice to this view and it should not be platformed. Anytime you're dealing with concepts like platforming, giving voice to make space for any of that stuff, you're talking about essentially uh, creating a propagandist piece of work. Um, but there were additional problems in the arts prior to that. And I think some of it also goes back to uh, the Me Too era, for example. If you look at our most famed artists, many of whom, like, historically, many of whom are being historically cut off at the knees. Brecht, for example, was a womanizer, you know, all of this kind of stuff. Uh, Shakespeare was probably evil at heart, whatever it is. Uh, we look at that. I think, I think actually Gauguin is now, Paul Gauguin, the painter, is actually being criticized for his portraits of Tahitian women because he objectified them, right? What did he really do? Probably he thought they were hot, sure, you know, uh, but also he was seeking out beauty and representing beauty. And I think he did that in a lot of ways. Uh, maybe he wasn't a great guy. 
So now we have a situation where, you know, if you're not a great guy, then your art has to be considered bad as well. You can't have your art out there either. So this happened also before um, the whole Me Too thing. And also our conception, I think, of what an artist is has changed over time. So we used to have this idea, actors, performers, theater people were considered really disgusting, you know, really horrible, like scourge of the earth people. You don't want an actor at your table any more than you want a carny, you know, at your table. Like nobody wanted actors around. They were considered horrible. Um, so we used to have this idea of artists as being, to a certain extent, filthy, belligerent messes of human beings who, whether despite of or because of, were able to tap into this broader, beautiful realm and present it sometimes even at the expense of their own selves. We had this idea, uh, you know, of what art, what art took to create. Sometimes it took the destruction of an individual through drink or drugs or, you know, terrible lifestyles. Look at Rambo or Celine um, or what's his name? Uh, the guy, post office guy, Bukowski, any of these guys, you know, that was the Kerouac. First when you started listing cancellation potential, the first person I thought of was Bukowski. <laughs> right, right. Um, <laughs> which, which, like, is, which is the favorite of all angry, uh, <laughs> angry teenagers everywhere. Right. Um, I think one of his best quotes, though, was in the morning, it was morning and I was still alive. I still really quite like that. Um, yeah. So we had this idea. And then gradually, one by one, all of these things. These, I got these new AirPods, decide that, and they are literally too big for my ears. I don't know why they're not shaped like the old ones. I, I always have that problem with all mm -hmm. of those. Um, it's a horror. Your ear. That's why I wear over the ear headphones. That's I why just you like have the more. giant ones. Yep. That's fair. <laughs> so, um, yeah, sidebar. Apologies. They're falling out of my ears. Um, yeah. So we used to have this idea that artists, artists were allowed to be dirty horrible people because they created such beautiful things that changed in the theater community for sure um whether rightly or wrongly right it's i'm not making a judgment call on that um so that was part of it then we had situations where men were getting uh you know so suddenly if you show up drunk to rehearsal that's an issue that wasn't an issue for john barrymore wasn't an issue for marlon brando wasn't an issue for like any of those guys, you know, but it certainly became an issue um, in the contemporary realm of art that I was creating. You also then started to have issues about, you know, the casting couch, which is notorious uh, directors who producers who would entice young women to uh, go to bed with them in hopes of getting parts or in exchange for you had Weinstein, right? That became a big issue. Uh, I'm not crazy about this casting couch idea, but um, we did then start to have an issue where it wasn't just the men who would perpetrate that kind of uh, exchange, if you will. Um, you know, we're supposed to, the left is supposed to be pro-sex work, but you know, a casting couch is a bridge too far. So, okay. Anyway, <laughs> um, so then you had this issue where a man who perhaps had an affair should not be permitted to have a career anymore because Harvey Weinstein couldn't have a career anymore. Harvey Weinstein, whatever it was that he did, that concept was suddenly brought to, you know, like you're like a random 
literary figure, you know, and I'm thinking of people that I interviewed actually for an article in The Federalist, uh, Stephen Elliott, who's a novelist, brilliant novelist, who was accused of some horrible things anonymously and um, is now suing for defamation for this. He lost his whole career. Um, and others, others as well, men that I know this has happened to. So then, you know, it's like increasingly an artist is required to not only conform in their ideological views, but in their lifestyle as well, to be a very specific entity who is allowed to create art and have that art consumed. Um, whether you agree with the actions of these men who lost their careers, or whether you agree with the actions of someone like me who spoke out and you know lost their career because of it, I think the point stands that it is bad for art, no matter what. Um, so, so yeah, that's, that's definitely a distinct, that's definitely a distinct thing. You know, in some sense, we're, there, there's a deeper question here about morality and art, right? Um, we're talking mm -hmm. about it almost in the easiest case, even though it's the most politically relevant for our times, right? This kind of cancellation for totally ridiculous stuff, right? Like stuff that's outside of, um, you know, sort of, first of all, that's, that's not in any way immoral. Um, and second of all, things that are not really connected to the art itself, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's always been a harder question for me, though, uh, when, when the art and, the, and something that's deeply immoral is intertwined together. I think it's a much more interesting question. And I, I, I'm like going to this because um, I first thought about this. I, I'm 98% sure it was Andrew Wythe. Um, Wyeth, Wythe. But I went, I went to an exhibit, and so there's a cachet of his paintings that actually he never even published or he never, like, put out into the world um, that are all of this this girl. And I think she's 14, 15, right? Um, and he was much, much, much older. Um, and, and they are, you know, beautiful paintings, but they're representative of a likely affair um, that he had, or at least this museum presented it that way. I went back and looked, and apparently not everyone agrees that this was actually an affair, but... Um, in any case, uh, it was presented as, okay, this, this was like his girlfriend, basically, um, his his uh, affair that he was having with a very, very young girl. Um, and in that case, it's inextricable, right? He painted her in these beautiful ways because he was in love with her. Um, and yet, you know, we would think that's that's an immoral act, right? Um, to, to sleep with somebody who's essentially just out of early teens. Mm -hmm. um, certainly wasn't always considered that way going back in time. But even by the time this happened, I think it was already like not common. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. But th there's, there's this question where if the art itself is like produced out of or is glamorizing something that could be evil, right? Um, and that's not to say that I'm in favor of censorship, for example, or that we should pull down these paintings. But it is a more complicated question to me. Like, where do we... Because... I've always sort of critiqued um, some European societies in, in this that I think they almost like say that being an artist is an excuse. Like you, you can do anything, no matter how immoral, as long as you call it art. Um, and as long as you, you play the art card or the artist card um, and, and society has enormous tolerance, like for example, in France for um, the immorality of, of artists, even when it's not, you know, sort of connected and how these two things are wrapped up together. It's always been an interesting question to me, because it's not clear to me that art is sort of totally detached from questions of morality. 
I don't think art has ever been totally detached from questions of morality. And I know the Wyeth paintings, um, they are absolutely beautiful. They're gorgeous paintings. Uh, it makes sense that the French would be more willing to divide morality and art and say that um, a beautiful piece of art justifies whatever that artist went through to create it. And as a result, the French have some really spectacular artworks in, you know, in painting, um, of course, in literature, really fascinating work, uh, really filthy work, you know, really, um, really filthy work in France. And it's, it's spectacularly brilliant. It's beautiful stuff. Um, so do, is there, is there a, a is there an excuse for immorality if the art is worthwhile? Perhaps not, but is that particularly for society to judge or is it up to society to accept the work that's, that's given? I'm not sure, it's a tough question, but it is a particularly American question because we are based in this puritanical view. And it makes sense that in Europe, they don't have that kind of issue. And I, you know, I respect that. I respect not having that kind of issue. We do struggle with it. I think that, um, would I say that good art makes any act that it took to create it worthwhile? No, not necessarily. I used to know a painter who um, painted with his own blood on occasion, and he would injure himself in order to access the blood that he would then use in his work. I'm not crazy about that. Uh, I don't think that's a great idea. He did though, and it was his work and the work is exemplary work. So I'm, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure. I don't think though that I would, and I certainly have not, um, I certainly have not taken an artist and said I would not view their work simply because of whatever it is that their background was. I love Woody Allen's work. I'm always going to love it. Um, I defended Michael Jackson rather extensively, actually on an Irish radio broadcast that was then not aired because the station determined that um, what I had said was a bridge too far, I guess. I think I was really just defending uh, fans of Michael Jackson's who continued to enjoy his work. Um, so no, I don't think that the act is justified in an artist who, commits immoral acts in order to make beautiful art. Is the, is the act justifiable? No, but the work does stand alone. I believe that fully. Yeah, Manhattan's a really like actually Manhattan's the second uh, example I always use besides Andrew Wyeth. It's, is the, um, because Manhattan is so clearly, um, you know, and I, I, I like a lot of Woody Allen movies. I don't like Manhattan and not only because oh, I love, I love Manhattan I with Meryl Hemingway. Movie. And of course, yeah. <laughs> I love the first yeah. 10 minutes of Manhattan. The second Woody Allen's voice comes in, I'm like, I'm done. <laughs> no, really? um, no, I just, I don't find his sexual sort of uh, anxieties as fascinating as he seems to find them. Um, but I think he, I think he was, I mean, I, there's a few movies of his that I really love. I think he is a great director um, and a great artist, but, but it's a good example of what I'm talking about where you have the work itself intertwined. I think it's much easier when it's like, oh, he produced this great art, but then also did these immoral things in his life that really weren't in any particular way. It wasn't like 
in order to produce the art? That's the, that's the difficult question, right? It, well, but I, how can you even decide? Doing- how can you even tell? Like if somebody cre- if if somebody behaves immorally and also produces great art, you don't know what the connection is necessarily between those two things. That's true. You know? I mean, that's a good point. And there is, there is, you know, everybody's sort of their life feeds into what they produce. Yeah. But to me, it's a, a harder question if it's, it's that connection is really tight and clear, right? If the art, the work itself is like demonstrative or, or glamorizing in some way um, of the immoral act, right? If somebody was to put on like a performance art by mm-hmm. shooting someone on fifth Avenue, you know, to use the, the Trump example. Right. right? Um, like, but that's also the I mean, work and the immorality yeah. are literally one and the same versus the experiences that we all have in life. Some of the moral, some of them immoral, some more immoral than others. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Feeding into your larger perspective that creates art. That's something that's much easier for me to swallow than like a direct, but it, it, it's not an easily, you know, it's, it's not a question that's like has a single answer. And I, I do think there has to be a balance somewhere because certainly yeah, I think so too. for like to and try it also to depends on no, go ahead. Art. no, no, just to try to remove art from the public um, because of this, this has no, no end. And I think it leads to what you said before, which is essentially um, the destruction of, and of most things that are worthwhile and artistic and beautiful. There's also sort of this weird thing that just occurred to me, which is, you have from the progressive left two very distinct things that are, are in con- conflict. You have a moral superiority um, with, you know, for example, Me Too or, you know, the ideological heresies. But you also have a relativist view um, where all morality is essentially equivalent based on, um, you know, the cultural perspectives of the person who holds that moral view. Uh, those two things don't seem like they can be in concert necessarily. And yet here we are, we have a situation where um, some immoral acts are accepted by the progressive left because they are uh, of a specific culture, for example, and you have others that are not acceptable because they are from the dominant culture. So it's like immorality is ex- is is exempted um, on relativist terms, so long as it's not the dominant culture, in which case it is you know a defilement of everything else. It's sort of interesting. Yeah, there's definitely a tension there. It's um, but increasingly, I think that tension is fading in in the direction of of sort of, I, I, I do think that, um, the, the new left is, is doggedly moralistic, right? Yeah, um, I think so as, too. But- as much, but, but I think they're kind of leaving behind a lot of the postmodern, um, sort of waffling around, uh, whether or not the truth exists, whether there's anything other than perspectives. I think increasingly that, that part of the left is just fading into the background and perhaps, I mean, there's some interesting questions to be asked there, just, uh, whether or not that's inevitable, whether or not every both person and society does eventually assert a, a vision of the good, even if they assert that the good doesn't exist, they always like we as humans keep coming back to mm-hmm. um, needing that that sort of to be able to assert something, something normative. Um, but it certainly seems like that's fading to me. It certainly seems like 
it's not just a contradiction anymore. One side is winning. I feel like 10 years ago it was more push pull. And now it's like, no, nobody feels bad on the left about being doggedly moralistic about certain propositions. But there's no basis for the morality of the left. There's no value system other than the uh, value of power is bad. Being oppressed is good. Being victimized is like a net good, right? Um, and that that value system actually leaves um, leaves out any room for a differentiation between objective right and wrong, uh, because it doesn't matter what the action is. It only matters what your position in society is when you commit the action. Yeah, I mean, um, I think that's a really good observation, and. I guess just to transition subjects a little bit, although I think it's quite related to what we, we were talking about. I mean, these questions of, of sort of grappling through um, sort of metaphysical questions or, or um, ethical questions. I mean, uh, obviously we're not, the, <laughs> we're not the first to go through this, um, but it does seem to connect it to, to the subject for which you were canceled. Um, not not just in the transgender context, but in uh, the larger context, it seems like we need we need a reason to these days to defend being human, right? Mm. Not just human frailty, which is a large part of your your, your um, you know basis for any kind of forgiveness, um, and and something that the the dogmas of the left seem to be conspicuously lacking is any way back any forgiveness, um, but it. You know what? What is it about you? Because you said you were attracted to uh, the ideas of transhumanism. Um, in like they excited you in a way. Like they seemed kind of there were aspects of it that you found very appealing. Um, mm-hmm. But ultimately, you seem to have come down on the side that says we're going to lose something essential about our humanity if we, for example, think about ourselves as floating brains separate from our our um, physical reality, and then you know through increasingly. Um, good technical means mm-hmm. um, can manipulate our physical reality to match match the, the sort of mental landscape that we we would prefer. I mean, what what is your assertive? What's your normative assertive reason for staying human? If if those kinds of um, fantastic uh, those kinds of fantastic uh, additions or or manipulations to the body become possible, what's the argument for staying naturally human? I think. Um... Well, what attracted me to transhumanism was the idea of immortality, which was one of the early tenets of uh, transhumanism was that you could with uh, you could intentionally evolve human beings with the help of technology toward much longer lifespans, for example, uh, immortality. The transhumanist movement, such as it is, has backed away from that claim that immortality is possible, although they do still seek longevity, which is understandable. Uh, Human life is relatively short given the time span. So I thought that that was interesting. You know, I would very much like to live forever. I have this conversation with my 12 year old all the time. And he says to me that the, the downside of living forever is that you would have to see all the people that you love and care about die, to which I reply probably rather callously that there's always new people to love and care about. You know, there's always more great people in the world. And he's like, mom, no. Um, so yeah, so I was, you know, and the reason I'm attracted to immortality is because uh, we're telling this amazing human story. All of us collectively 
and I'd really like to see how it turns out. Um, that's of interest to me, but, uh, but staying human. Um, I think that we underestimate how amazing the human body is and how uh, amazing the human experience is. We underestimate the value of experience, um, of, of, of touch, right? We underestimate camaraderie and uh, real connection. And these are things that I think uh, are so integral to being human, are our physical experiences just with one another, just in the world, just being part of um, what's going on around us and our environment. There's also something to be said about having a, a soul, which I know is something nobody really thinks of anymore. You're, now we believe that our gender is somehow innate and holy to us, whereas the soul is just this fabrication that doesn't exist. Um, and I think there's something too, though, the idea of a human soul that, um, you know, whether it's energy that lives on after you or, or some aspect of yourself, you know, that lives on after you, I think there's, uh, I think there's sort of something marvelous about that, about that sort of connection to uh, an eternal. Um, I was teaching catechism for a while at my church, and there were always every year, there would be like a few atheists whose parents had forced them to go, you know, 12, 13 year old, 14 year old atheists who were well, 13 whose parents had forced them to go and they would say that they didn't believe in an afterlife. And I would say, okay, well, what about energy? You know, energy can neither be destroyed nor created. We know that. So what happens to your energy when you die? Where does it go? And this always at least led to not answers, but um, an opening of imagination, which I think is another aspect of being human that I would not want to lose. Also, I think that when we think about losing our humanity, um, we think about what we're giving up and we assume that we know what we would be getting in return for giving up that humanity. And I don't think that we do. I don't think that we do know what we're giving up. We're seeing now um, people who have undergone gender transition medically who are realizing later in life that perhaps they have not become what they thought they would become when they underwent the transition. And that in fact, there was no way to become what they, what they thought they were, would become. So they made a trade in order to get something that they thought was real only to find that this, that they sought was not something that they could be. It was not something um, that was even a tenable proposition. So that's something to consider as well. When we think about change, when we think about um, becoming something else, we get very hopeful, assuming that we can do the thing, that we can be the thing. And we don't, you know, maybe we think about what we're losing, but we don't always think about the problem that what we seek does not exist. So when we consider become, you know, when we consider the project of transhumanism, of the intentional evolution of human beings with the help of technology. What we are considering giving up humanity for is in fact a fantasy that we have no reason to believe is actually uh, tenable in reality. So that's part of it as well. Imagine cutting off your arms because you think that you're going to get way better arms and then having them just constantly hurt at the connection point. And now your life is just constant pain 
with a very functional fake arm. Um, my dad once told me this story. His uncle had problems with his teeth. Teeth were terrible. And this was, you know, in the 50s, apparently, or something like that. And so his uncle um, decided to pull all his teeth and get these great new teeth. He's going to get fake teeth, and they were going to replace the old teeth, and then he wasn't going to have to worry about having bad teeth anymore. Well, it turned out that the fake teeth were way worse than just having bad teeth. They were falling out, and he could never quite get them right. Um, and so my dad told me about this, that his uncle said, never pull out all your teeth. Um, and I think Very with transhumanism, right? yeah, I mean, I think with transhumanism, we have to be careful lest we put out, pull out all our teeth and the dentures do not actually fit and we still can't eat apples, you know, like then what? Yeah. I mean, um, it seems like especially young women, um, seem, and I, as much as I remember being, you know, 13, 14, 15, 16, um, I think they're especially vulnerable to that, like, transformative thinking where they think that if they just change something about themselves, that, like, their their worlds, their lives are going to be much happier, much easier. You see it with, you know, a, a lot of a lot of folks who have lost a lot of weight. They'll tell you, mm -hmm. you know, it's great that I lost all this weight. I'm, you know, I'm healthier and there are advantages. I'm, I'm probably more attractive to most people. It's not that there are no advantages, but I really, like, somehow subconsciously thought this would solve like my deeper problems and, and my discomfort in the world. Um, and it doesn't, right. You're just a skinny right. version of yourself. You're stuck with yourself. Right. Um, and we, Americans, I think have um, maybe more tendency than others also in this. Cause like, it's, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing about this country that we think everything is possible. Right. Um, right. And we think that we can on the moon. Think, yeah. 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 I think Americans have this very optimistic like mindset um, about about the future, about um, maybe changing a little bit now, but um, about the future, about the possibilities. You know, other other countries and other people have said this thing is impossible and America has managed to do it many, many times. Right. So we have this sense that we can just go on defying the odds of the impossible over and over and over again. But, um, you know, when that that optimism is directed at something like changing your sex, which isn't possible. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's not a possible thing, not just with, in my view, not just with the technological, uh, technological problems where you end up having a ton of medical problems, the equivalent of your, your arm hurting um, example. Right. Um, but, but more fundamentally, like you, you can't actually change your sex because your sex is a reality in the world. Um mm -hmm. And is not subject to your manipulations. All you can do is create a facsimile of it. And maybe our facsimile will get closer and closer over time. Um, but it's you still, still just fashion. Missing, yeah, you're missing the essence of the thing. Mm -hmm. um, which maybe some people would, would disagree with. That you have like sort of identical copies. If you can have good enough surgery um, to, to sort of pass as a woman. If you're transitioning from being a man. Um, maybe like... That is, for some people, that is an identity rather than a similarity. But to me, it fundamentally seems not. And um, do you, do you think that we have had? Um, I guess the question I'm, I'm I'm thinking about now is why has this ideology, this transgender ideology, and then also I think things like transhumanism, why has it been so popular here in America? Um, 
and increasingly even sort of European countries that were on many issues are, are to our left, right, um, mm-hmm. are complaining about the woke influence of, of American thought, uh, especially on topics like transgenderism um, into European countries and um, certainly around the world. There, there are plenty of people who, who um, have made this identity now between what it is to be American and essentially this, this like extreme form of, of wokeness, because that's how they experience those ideas coming into their country. So, you know, why, why do you think we have been particularly susceptible to this dream of, of rearranging ourselves? Um, that's a really interesting question. I think that it does have something to do with our ethos of always looking for the next new thing of always being open to a new possibility. For sure. I think that's part of it. I also think, however, that the um, the bigger the U.S. got in terms of being a global superpower, the more we started to question ourselves and to start questioning the validity of our own influence, whether or not as a nation we deserved to have as much power as we certainly have had. If you think about uh, the gaining of that power, it came with a lot of pride um, and joy and patriotism and all of that kind of stuff. And then when we started to see ourselves fail, for example, with, uh, you know, Vietnam and then um, with, you know, September 11th and all of these, all of these failures, I think we started to really question ourselves uh, to a point where almost the common view of America is that we are a flawed and struggling nation as opposed to a great and successful nation that is working to overcome any difficulties, you know, that we may have. I think there's a deep seated, uh, I think we, I I think Americans are self-hating. And I think the American nation to a certain extent is self-hating. Even if you look at our leadership recently, you know, they're constantly talking about the scourges that need to be rooted out at the very basis of our society. You have universities throwing money at anyone they can think of in order to try and distance themselves from their original sin of having, you know, had people enslaved on their campuses way back when. Uh, This is this is this constant thing, this constant uh, pressure of trying to seek out and destroy your own unconscious bias. You know, I think I think that has something to do with it. Um, But as to why, this is a question that I think really needs to be figured out almost so that we can overturn it. You know, it's almost like the the new sin is like that we just hate ourselves and we're never going to succeed as a nation to fulfill the goals that we pretty much all agree and have agreed are essential goals if we keep hating ourselves. Um, it's sort of terrifying to watch. It's terrifying to watch it in education and in art to see, you know, we joke about this at post-millennial frequently. We say like, oh, another day watching civilization crumble. Um, you know, why, why is this what has to go on? Um, as soon as we have an achievement, we start to deride it. You know, a great example is fossil fuels. We have, um, you know, what did we have before fossil fuels? We had coal, we had wood, we had whales, right? Like the only reason we could save the whales is because we stopped needing them to light our lamps. We stopped needing them for energy. If we had still needed whales, there'd be no saving the whales. That would have been a totally bogus proposition. Um, We have fossil fuel and we hate ourselves for having fossil fuel. We don't don't look at the fact that fossil fuel brought 
so much of the global population out of poverty. Uh, that's a huge achievement and we discount it. We just complain that now fossil fuel is killing the whales, you know, that we used to kill for energy ourselves. Um, but yeah, I, I would love to know why we're susceptible to this. Uh, some of it may have to do with our puritanical roots, which I think go far deeper than anyone really wants to imagine at this point. Like we have, um, you know, we, we began with this insane undercurrent of, um, you know, shame and, <laughs> and feeling like we're not good enough for, for God and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and I think to a certain extent that has been pervasive. Also, we don't forgive ourselves. To a certain extent, Americans, even those who complain about this concept, all Americans are extremely exceptionalist toward America because we think that no matter what we're doing, we should be doing it better. We should always be jumping higher. Why aren't you jumping higher? Um, we should always have more equality. You know, why is there one person starving in Milwaukee tonight? That means we have failed as a nation, you know? Um, everything that we do, we look at it and we say, that's not good enough. It's like the entire nation is my critical grandma. You know, may she, may she rest in peace. Um, but we never think that what we do is good enough. We always think that we should be doing better. And instead of, at this point, instead of using that robust, healthy sense of criticism to spur us on to greater achievement, we're using it to beat ourselves about the face. It's our hair shirt. You know, slavery is our hair shirt. Um, we, we whip ourselves with our, with, our, with our sins, with our crimes. We don't seek to change them. It's, it's like the entire nation is in some sort of um, lamentation for our own sins and there's no one to forgive us. The rest of the world isn't gonna forgive us. They're going to keep saying, give us more stuff. Give us more weapons, give us more vaccines. Um, give us more stuff. And America's gonna keep giving it until there isn't anything, you know? Let more of us in. Give us your prosperity. Um, and I think to a certain extent, that's, that's fine. And America should always be trying to uh, do better as the garbage saying goes. Um, but are we ever gonna forgive ourselves? Are we ever going to say, we've done some difficult things as a nation, we wish we hadn't done them. We're not doing them anymore. We're going to go forth with pride in our, in our realization that we can continue to achieve despite these flaws? Are we ever going to do that? Uh, I don't know that other nations go through the same kind of perhaps teen angst that we are going through now. You know, I know that Germany had quite a, quite a reckoning even Germans that I know now who are like in their twenties, like they don't, they don't like when you joke about the Holocaust. <laughs> like, <laughs> like what you guys did. No one likes that. No one likes that. Um, yeah, I think, so. I think the, the question ultimately is um, that America is going to have to grapple with is, is whether the standard we're judging ourselves by is perfection um, and mm -hmm. utopia or whether 
and and I do think this is, and I've said before on this podcast, I do think this is the fundamental line between conservatives and the, like whatever you want, right and left, um, more broadly is is whether you're looking down from utopia or up from sort of the morass of human history where life has been nasty, brutish, and short, right? Um, and I think we are you know. doing the former. I think we are holding ourselves to a standard that has never been achieved by anyone ever. We're holding ourselves to the standard of our ideals, which is, you know, just because we have not achieved our ideals doesn't mean they're not worth having. But also just because we haven't achieved our ideals doesn't mean um, that there's something wrong with us. Each of us all the time is trying to be a better version of ourselves. Every day we fail. And then the next day we fail again. Sometimes we succeed. It's like the Sam Beckett line, you know, try again, fail again, try again, fail better, something like that. I think, um, I think America needs to realize that we are failing better all the time. And so do, so do little girls. Uh, let's tell little girls that growing up to be a woman is a great thing to be. Growing up to be, you know, a woman who can have children or who can, um, you know, dance pirouettes, whatever it is that you choose, you know, grow up, find, find a good place for yourself. That's, that's acceptable. Let's tell kids that being a grown up is a good thing to be, you know, let's stop dissing on adulting all the time. One thing I talk to my son about is you're going to grow up to be, you know, a big tall man who can take care of himself and his family who is up, up to the challenge of new responsibilities and you're going to excel at this. You're going to find joy in this. And that's all that is to the good. Uh, let's tell children that responsibility is not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. Didn't we see recently like um, some actress, was it Jamila Jamil, who is great on The Good Place. And even though I disagree with everything she says, I still watch that show and I like it. Um, she was talking about how we need to tell men that abortion is good for them. Otherwise, they have to face the responsibility of fatherhood. Let's tell young men that the responsibility of fatherhood is what it is, which is a really great thing. It brings a lot of joy to your life. We should tell kids this, that it's good to be a grown-up. Remember when you were a kid? I don't know. When I was a kid, everyone wanted to be a grown-up. Everyone was like, oh, I can't wait till I'm a grown-up and I can eat as much candy as I want. Now no one wants to be a grown-up. I talk to these kids and they're like, no, no, I don't want to grow up. Why? And you get to eat as much candy as you want. Like you really do get to eat as much candy as you want. Yeah. I mean, um, <laughs> I, I've never, I've never uh, kind of, even when I was a kid, I wanted to be a grown up. And then once I was a grown up, I never wanted to be a child again. Um, but it, it does seem like being an adult um, and, and with all the, all the responsibilities that come with it, including not eating just candy. Um, mm -hmm. uh, it seems like more and more it's it's conceived of only as a burden. You're right, as, mm -hmm. as opposed to a source of joy and meaning um, and something good alongside having responsibilities. But um, Libby Emmons, thank you so much for joining High Noon. It was a fascinating conversation to have with you. And um, folks can find more of Libby's work. You can go to the Post Millennial, where she is the editor in chief. You can go to Twitter. Um, and find her there. You can also, she's a frequent guest on Tim Pool, so you have heard her there. Um, but uh, Libby, is there anywhere else that uh, you'd like people to go to find your work? Sure. I'm on Twitter at Libby Emmons. Um, 
I have a, a new Instagram that's public. It's not just pictures of me and my kid like the other one. Uh, and it's Libby.Emmons. If you want to see pictures of me eating ice cream, I'm pretty sure that's that's where you can see that. <laughs> so Taking boring. advantage of, those, those, of being an adult by eating ice eating cream. Eating all the so ice cream want I want. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on, Libby. Thanks, Inez. And thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can hit uh, send comments and questions to inez.stepman at iwf.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or iwf.org. Be brave, and we will see you next time on High Noon.